Hey everyone, welcome to Let's Get Real with Sandra and Friends, a workplace consortium podcast brought to you by Relogix. I'm excited to be sharing conversational musings about current events and how we envision the ever-changing world of work. I'm Sandra Panera, Director of Workplace Insights at Relogix. With 25 years of hands-on experience, I help value engineer global workplace portfolios and employee experiences by aligning workplace analytics with corporate real estate needs. Have any questions, comments, or suggestions for future podcasts? Please drop me a line at podcast at relogics.com. Mitch Turk is a self-proclaimed outsider in residence, producing thought leadership and change advocacy to address the convergence of industries, ideas, and opportunities. He conducts social experiments in virtual work and in 2017 conceived legislation to make telecommuting a civil right. So welcome, Mitch. Uh, glad to finally have you on as a guest. Before we get started, why don't you go ahead and uh, introduce yourself? Well, thank you, Sandra. And yeah, my pleasure to be on. I uh, really need to work on figuring out how to introduce myself, at least briefly. So <laughs> I'll keep it I'll keep it brief at the expense of uh, informing anyone on anything useful. But um, apart from a bunch of other things, I tend to work in sectors where change management is uh, appealing, or at least at the time. And in this case, uh, it, you know, anything around remote work, virtual productivity and telecommuting is obviously very hot. And so even though I've been spending time in that space pre pandemic, it's, uh, very much kind of come to a head now. And so I, I am spending quite a bit of time in that space, mostly just pontificating and, uh, yelling at executives as to how they should do things, which is a great job. Um, and that's, that's about it. That's great. I actually um, was listening to your podcast earlier this morning. I think you shared something with me a while back, and uh, I was looking at the podcast discussed or the what well, how you describe the podcast. So telekin- telekinetic, correct? That's the yeah. podcast. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and you said something about uh, that. I loved what you said, where you know, if there's a trip being made by knowledge that used to be made by people, we're here for it. And I thought, oh, that's actually a really cool way of of sort of summarizing what you do right it's kind of like we're used to sort of the whole like transportation you know how we commute kind of all of the stuff of people going places and that was really what the world of work was all about and now like this idea of you know a mindful trip versus a physical (laughs) physical trip Mm. which i thought is very appropriate for the discussion that we're we're about to have so um, you and I met on LinkedIn earlier this year, and we've shared uh, our point of views on a number of um, different topics. Um, the first one, as I said, was more along the lines of transportation and commuting. I think it was back probably not at the very beginning of when the pandemic started, but just this, there was a lot of discussion around the exodus of the urban cities and kind of what mm-hmm. the impact that was going to have on the future of work. So why don't we start there and maybe give us a little bit of sort of your thoughts on what you're seeing uh, and what you're what you're hearing from different people that you're interacting with on in that regard. Yeah. So, I mean, as far as future of work, I, this is one of the things I just ranted about this morning, I think, to someone was um, I think, ironically, I find it whatever you want to call it, knowledge work or white collar work, work that used to be thought to be done in the office um, is kind of not interesting nor challenging or even less so challenging of a problem to kind of consider in the in the space of virtualization and augmentation and hybridization 
when compared to sectors where where physical presence actually has a lot of utility, like healthcare, um, education, although decreasingly so, construction, retail, uh, manufacturing, things of that nature. So in that sense, I think it's it's actually kind of interesting that we have so it's not surprising, but it's interesting that we have so much emphasis on, you know, what is the new office going to be or what is, you know, what is the hybrid environment going to be? And it's like to me, if if we just had in a you know pie in the sky, if we all just had one big pile of money we were working from, I would absolutely not recommend <laughs> that we put our investment dollars into how the office will look. It's like if you can teach a student or heal a patient or build a structure in, you know, a hybrid or augmented or virtualized environment, um, then you can certainly hold a, a budget meeting, right? So in that sense, I think it's kind of funny that we're spending so much time thinking about how the future of work is going to look. It, and when we're looking at it from this space of the knowledge worker, because it's just like, uh, you know, we could all just be remote and that would be fine. <laughs> Like <laughs> much bigger, much bigger consequences than like how whether the work is slightly better or worse when produced that way. That's interesting. Do you think that and, and I agree, I agree 100 percent because I think there's a lot of focus on the physical space, the design, uh, what needs to be changed and kind of this lot of focus and effort and emphasis being put on this. Almost to the extent where we, we're obviously seeing it, you know, daily where, you know, how can you entice people to bring them back into the workplace? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've, I've voiced my sort of opinions over time that, you know, there really isn't anything that you can do to entice someone to want to come back to the physical space. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's obviously different reasons why people might want to go into a space, but you know, I, I doubt that it's because of the way a space is designed. Like that's just kind of, yeah, you get that wow factor, you know, when you walk into a space and it's like, oh, this is really cool space, but that wears off really quickly. Like if the culture is not there or the mindset yeah. or the values or those types of things, which are much more sticky, aren't there, you could have the most beautiful office and it's not going to, it's not going to guarantee, you know, guarantee anything, right? So one of the reasons that I've heard time and time again for this whole thing of like the the office redesign and all of that stuff is the fact that with so many people leaving these urban centers that, you know, there's going to be a collapse, right? There's a lot of businesses and, and support that's required by when people work in these centralized urban locations. And so mm-hmm. with people now dispersing into suburbia, people going into, you know, other um cities that before were maybe referred to as bedroom communities because they were less expensive to live in, but people were still commuting. Is this why there's this push to reinvent the office, but still in the downtown core? Like, what do you think is the reason why there's this focus on on redesigning the space? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, certainly people's vested interests, I, I would assume, are what what drive a lot of that. Um, and, and obviously just, you know, general conservation bias of thinking these these buildings were here for this purpose it's going to take a lot of movement in people's minds to understand why or whether those constructs should change mm-hmm. um and you would you know you would know this better than i i think is you know obviously is around uh, commercial real estate and the interest there and the incentives there the way we have habitually prioritized commerce as a you know the the hub 
of the urban core and the, and the deciding factor or the primary factor in how we design our cities, um, which is, you know, we're like now reluctantly coming to realize is a bit nonsensical when you're not operating, you know, a, a silver mine or something to that effect. Yeah. But I would contend that, you know, there, there's obviously like the hot take there or the, or the, the interesting tabloid of the, of the moment to say, Oh, everyone's leaving the cities, blah, blah, blah. You know, anything that happened during the pandemic, I think, has to be taken with a large grain of salt, obviously. Mm-hmm. And in general, I think that take is, I mean, let's just say people have preferences, right? So obviously some folks would prefer to have, um, you know, a big yard and a big house and things of that nature. Uh, we can get into all the subsidies and incentives that allow them to think that that's something they can do when it's not really sustainable. But regardless of that, I think what people are maybe missing is that there's already, you know, you don't need a crystal ball to see what a city looks like when it's not all about the four or five very large skyscrapers that everyone commutes into to work and then leaves at the end of the day. The, mm-hmm. A lot of the best cities, in fact, I was, as I was uh, van lifing pre-pandemic for a year, uh, one particular year, we spent a month in kind of each of the cities that we really liked in America. And with one, I would say one exception, I wouldn't even argue that is an exception, but with one exception, those cities were all places that have virtually, like you can count on one hand, the number, I think, of commercial, large commercial buildings in those cities. Like we're talking Asheville, North Carolina, Boulder, Colorado, Bozeman, Montana, Santa Barbara, California, St. Petersburg, Florida. I forget. There's a few others. But, you know, there's basically no commercial presence in uh, as far as skyscrapers and large buildings are concerned. And and therefore, the, you know, commuting patterns and all of the infrastructure that's built around that to support that in those cities. So before we even get into speculating on, you know, what will happen, that would be my challenge to folks is like, where does everyone go to get married? to go on vacation? Where does everyone go to have a good time and spend their dollars? They don't, they don't go to Detroit, you know, they yeah. <laughs> go to the cities I mentioned. So what does that tell you about the kind of uh, death grip that the large corporate structure has on uh, the sustainability and the resiliency and the economic viability of a city? Yeah, that's really, that's really interesting. Cause even from a, like just general living perspective, even just thinking about, you know, downtown Toronto, I mean, there's tons of buildings as is in most major urban city centers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's like condos like everywhere. Like it's, it's almost to the point where, you know, it's ruined, at least in my opinion, it's kind of ruined the experience of downtown because it's just skyscraper upon skyscraper. And, you know, you, the access to the waterfront is somewhat limited and the traffic and all of that stuff and you're like okay you know where does the fun begin (laughs) right it's like you know weekends roll around and you know the traffic is all heading northbound into cottage country or into like the countryside whether it's you know spring summer winter or fall it's not never it's very rarely the other way during the week yeah absolutely because you have to commute into downtown to work because that's where most of the jobs are located right but uh, mm-hmm. For, you know, rest and relaxation, people avoid the downtown core or like where the offices are to be in places that are can be free of the typical sort of work, uh, work mindset. Um, so along that line, then, how are you seeing the future of just urban centers? Like, do you think that there will be 
the exodus will remain that or what do you think people will go back once the pandemic is somewhat behind us? Yeah, I, I mean, admittedly, I've, it's not something I've tracked eagerly, but as far as some of the stuff that I've seen, people have already come back or it's, you know, the population has actually increased in a lot of these cities where people thought that you know, this exodus was happening. But, you know, I would say as someone who spends some time in transportation and sustainability, as far as designing cities, there really is, again, nothing to say about about the value of a large skyscraper that houses people less than a third of the time um, as it's standing and operating and then is empty the rest of the time. And then, of course, as as you were speaking to, as far as building everything else out, right, the roads and the parking garages, it's easy to forget, right? But like wherever there is a road or a spot for parking is a place where nothing else can really exist. And so, you know, and again, not to pick on Detroit, but they're a, a really good example of this where like, uh, I don't want to misquote the stat, but it's like upper thirties, like somewhere between 35 and 40% of Detroit's urban core is just land for cars to drive on, which obviously means they're going somewhere else. And obviously the more of that you put into that space, the more you have to spread out wherever the actual destinations are. Um, so, you know, in that sense, I think there's, it's very easy to do, uh, to, to make a city more viable, more enticing, more livable by simply taking that opportunity to say, Hey, we don't actually need people to come into work anymore. They can work from wherever. Um, should this parking lot instead be a park? Should this road instead be, uh, you know, pop up trucks for food and, um, parklets and, uh, should this, Street B for biking rather than parking. Should the commercial office building be residential, which would resolve a ton of issues around housing affordability? Um, should it be a space for, or should we have, you know, mixed use in there, retail? Should we have community welfare in there? Uh, which obviously tends to, is super important and tends to not get a lot of prioritization. You know, a lot of the things that we don't prioritize, which to go back to your point about making it enticing for people to go to the office, you know, how do you make it enticing for people to do anything is, is to your point, not really about making a, a fancy looking place. Mm-hmm. Um, like that's, that's cute and it's, you know, it's nice to some extent, but make it, make it livable. Right. And for a lot of folks, making something livable is, uh, where can I send my kids, you know, while I have to do this other thing. And that's, you know, that, that's a great example, which is, I think in kind of the conventional argument as to why we do need the office is kind of ironic, right? Is, we saw during the pandemic just how much we subsidize and incentivize building a world that just lets kids be away from their <laughs> away from their parents safely, whether it's, you know, the kids having to go to school or parents having to go to work. Um, just being able to separate families in a way that is safe is vital. And we don't put a lot of emphasis on that. And we kind of just in a lot of ways, we kind of half assed it by just saying, like, Oh, okay, you know, you can go to the office and that'll give you some space away from your kids to, to be an adult and let your brain, you know, function normally. Um, it's, it's like a like, day out. It's a day out of the house, right? It's like, okay, yeah, exactly. I need my space. It's like, I don't want to work at home because I can go to the office and be away from my significant other or my children or whatever and have yeah. peace of mind. <laughs> no, it's, I mean, listen, it's fair. And actually that, you know, the one podcast that you mentioned there where I had with Carlos Pardo, who's a, who's a great mind in mobility. He was referencing a study someone did about um, about soccer moms and how the moms need the soccer 
because it's a way to get out of the house so they don't have an account, a certain accountability to, you know, oh, I'm in the house and the kids are gone. I should be doing something to, you know, make the house more efficient or whatever or do something in the house. And if they're out with the kids and the kids are doing something, then they can just relax or whatever. And so the idea is basically like soccer moms need soccer to travel to because that's how you get your kids away from you and don't have an obligation. And, you know, the counterpoint would be like, well, we could certainly make a better society and better world around us in which that is not, you know, <laughs> we don't require some, some strange uh, jumping through hoops to create like the escapism that's required for someone's mind to uh, kind of get back to, to center. That's really interesting. So you've mentioned um, Carlos Pardo at NEMO. So um, mm-hmm. in that podcast, you, you talked about the concept of teletravel. Can you tell us a little bit more about what, what is teletravel? Yeah, yeah. So, and everyone kind of, I think, knows what it is without knowing, but, you know, telecommuting is a subset of teletravel, right? It's just the idea that you can commute the ideas or the information or whatever is needed to solve a task or, or, uh, solve a need through, you know, the web, most likely, right? But, you know, in any sense, whether it's a phone or something like that, do it without actually moving your, your body, uh, or moving vehicles or moving anything that is, uh, you know, physical infrastructure beyond obviously the, the fact that we have a, you know, behemoth infrastructure for, for telco. But, um, you know, so that's, that's all encompassing of what I kind of mentioned before around, um, healthcare, you know, so basically I should say all of these things are kind of called their own thing. They're like telehealth, teleeducation, um, you know, tele anything. That's all just teletravel, right? It's just a, an easier way to think of it. And arguably, the most important reason to think of it that way is that we've been kind of uh, inefficiently pursuing these innovations in their own sectors, right? And so telehealth, even though it has a huge impact on how we decide to build our cities and how we travel within them and, you know, to what degree we need to travel, the travel part is not a huge consideration outside of, you know, the the actual doctor's office and what that entails for them. But there was never really this consensus or I should say this um, collaboration between people who are advocating for telecommuting or working in innovations around telecommuting and people who are working around innovations of, you know, telehealth, teleeducation. They were all kind of their own sectors. But when you when you bring that all back to a, a broader view, we're really talking about the primary mode of transportation being telco being on being on telco highways right rather than being on actual highways and that means a lot for how you plan and prioritize your city and how you budget for investments that's interesting so there's a couple couple of things that comes to mind so um when you talk about teletravel and, and the way you've described it the first thing that comes to mind and i'm sure our listeners are probably also thinking the same thing is and there's been a ton of conversation around the need for you know personal sort of contact so kind of being in proximity of other people so not necessarily just the meeting of the minds but the actual physical proximity and how that that, you know there's benefits to that so when we think about teletravel telework everything tele where you're just basically still communicating you're still sharing ideas you're still doing what you do when you're physically in proximity of someone how do you think or do you think that there's there's any impact on healthy living when you when the world goes in that direction? Yeah. So and as far as specifically speaking to the, you know, the lack of physical 
proximity yeah. to a person or physical yeah. interaction. Yeah. 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 For, I mean, you know, for sure. It's, I think we can all say that we haven't cracked the nut that is, you know, physical interaction with, with an app or a, you know, subscription as a service yet. Uh, maybe we never will. And that's, you know, that's probably fine. But I guess my two points on that that I usually would counter with are, um, one, and this kind of, uh, and this kind of pulls back the veil on my main motivations for advocating for teletravel is, um, if you care about the sustainability of the world and, uh, specifically maybe around climate change, but even if you don't care about climate change, if you can at least acknowledge that we have a lot of crumbling infrastructure in the developed world, uh, that we need to take it easy on and maintain and repair, then the more you can make trips optional, the better, right? And that's not to say you can't do it, but you do want to be able to, uh, the pandemic is a great example, right? Like you do want to be able to do the task without having to use the infrastructure mm-hmm. if you can. And if, if everyone says, Hey, it's cool. You can go ahead and use the infrastructure. Then great. Go ahead and do it. But if you have a pandemic or, or if, uh, you know, sewer lines burst or, uh, you know, any other thing kind of happens, you obviously want to, you know, going back to that point of minimizing travel or the idea that kind of transportation op- optimizes at zero, right? The less you have to rely on external factors to be able to achieve the task, the, the better. Now, as far as the actual health and wellness goes, um, I think my argument would usually be that, and I get this, that again, the kind of conservation bias to think, well, if we don't all go in the office and see each other, we'll just be at home doing nothing. I was like, well, uh, you know, you could do that if that was your choice, but you know, what actually happens if you're not all in the office is that you're all in places where you could just be somewhere else. And so, you know, me, for example, I did this experiment where we went around the country and saw all of our friends and family. Um, and I saw more people, this is while I was teleworking, this is pre pandemic. And I saw more people who mean something to me, uh, rather than people who were, you know, picked by my corporation to work with me. Um, then most people have probably seen in a decade of their life, maybe more. Right. And so that would be kind of my primary counterpoint is you have just such greater ability to spend time with your neighbor, to go to your local cafe or store, to spend time with family, to actually build relationships with people based on mutual interests or pursuits or whatever value you, you know, you want to foist on them rather than uh, building relationships with people who you have no choice but to build relationships with and uh, whose interactions are all couched in making something more profitable or building a thing, you know? Yeah. And that's, that's actually pretty much my thinking as well. So as you were, as you were talking, that was kind of my, you know, the idea that I've always had around the argument around, you know, you need the office to build community, right? And a lot of companies mm-hmm. have building community as, you know, one of their values. And so I've always taken it from the standpoint of having, you know, been working from home for such a long time is that it's true. It's like the fact that I don't have to commute, the efficiencies that I gain as a result of that gives me the opportunity to volunteer in my community or, you know, get to know my neighbors or go and, you know, shop locally and support the community in where I live. 
And to me, that has way more value than, you know, getting in a car and driving for an hour and sitting in traffic. And so when you think of just the general benefit of that, I think from a healthy living perspective and kind of how you feel connected to community, I think that makes for a much more progressive society. You know, people can still feel like they belong, whereas, you know, in the office world, it's this push of this feeling of belonging, which supposedly or you're kind of meant to believe that that can only happen if you're actually in the office or if you go to work. And there is obviously value in connections that you make in the workplace. But as you say, Mm -hmm. being able to use the technology to stay in contact with people and, and even more importantly, just to have the choice that it's not a must. It's not something that you have to do every day, because if you don't, you're not productive. You can't be a collaborative. You can't be innovative and all this stuff and and all this garbage that we hear is that, you know, as individuals, just like we all learn differently, we also work differently and we, you know, we have different preferences and having that ability to sort of say, hey, I need a day to go and meet up with people at work. Sometimes it's just I just need a day out. Like I don't want to work from home today. So I'm going to take advantage of today and, and go downtown and meet up with, you know, some people and coordinate that. And that kind of refreshes, you know, your mind a little bit. And then you come back and you feel, you feel recharged. And so, so yeah, so I think that, you know, there's definitely efficiencies as a result of not having to, um, to commute. And it's really a shift. Another thing, too, that I think is really interesting, um, and I, I raised this, I don't remember if it was in a podcast or in, in a discussion a while ago about how, you know, companies, especially as it relates to the exodus, you know, it, in the downtown core where, you know, people are moving out into the suburbs and kind of moving further and further away. And you've got neighborhoods that don't have infrastructure, like they, mm-hmm. they have very little uh, transportation infrastructure. There's no, you know, Wi-Fi and stuff, stuff like that. And so again, thinking about work from home or work from anywhere and kind of how do you create inclusive communities is that, you know, rather than invest in redesigning your office space, right, is divest of the office space and think about how you as a company could invest in communities. So you sponsor a community to say, hey, we're going to you know, allow a certain amount of money to build infrastructure or to fund something that will help build the community. And then your brand becomes part of that community because, you know, company XYZ, you know, donated a certain amount of money or whatever, paid for a certain service or feature to build up that community. And so, again, I think it's just there's tons of opportunity for ways to rethink, you know, urban planning and, and just kind of the whole like, fact that people, you know, can't afford to live in the major metro areas, which is why a lot of people have moved out into less expensive neighborhoods. Uh, you know, they're all saying that the one thing that they don't miss is the commute. So obviously, if the pandemic has afforded that to all of us is that, okay, you know, you can work from home if you have the connections and whatever it is to be able to do that through technology. And so being in a position where you're now going to potentially be expected to go back is going to be really, really hard for people. And I don't think people are really going to, are really going to want that. Right. I mean, I certainly don't. Um, I mean, it's been a while since I've been in any kind of office, <laughs> office structure <laughs> myself, but yeah, you know, it, 
obviously people are going to want the choice. Um, you know, to your point, there's always an appeal of, of time away from your home, whether that's because there are people in it or just because you want to see other people or just get out of your home. Um, you know, and, and in a practical sense, yeah, you don't need an office to achieve that. That's, uh, actually in, uh, one of the examples, one of the best folks I ever worked for, Adam Polisic, routinely kind of just gave us, uh, the nod to use our corporate cards to, you know, gather up as a group when we needed to. So we all worked remotely for the most part and, but many of us were based in New York. And so probably every, you know, once or twice a week, we might gather for a happy hour or a coffee or something like that, two, three, five of us maybe. And, you know, that expense, you know, paled in comparison to what it would cost to cost. have an office space in, in New York. Right. So, yeah. um, and it was much more engaging, you know, cause people showed up when they, where and when they wanted to show up and the, the environment was such that it was, um, you know, actually much more collaborative and not so much disruptive, which is uh, always the other half of the interaction equation that no one wants to consider. So in that sense, yeah, you know, there's just a lot to be said for that, I think. Um, you know, what's going to be really interesting is whether and to what degree we start having some accountability around the things, the costs that we have, you know, subsidized and veiled and incentivized as a society and it's not to, you know, it's not meant to be like an expose or anything. You know, the reality is as a society, when we like something or think something is necessary, we do what we can to get more of it or to mitigate the the sense of, you know, guilt or expense involved in it. That's just naturally how we are. Um, and so, you know, something like commuting and uh, the office, the the traditional office building, you know, these are bastions of inefficiency and waste and they have been huge priorities for uh, a long time right i mean even uh, maybe people don't necessarily realize this but you know transportation planners don't they don't really design roads for everyone to use despite the fact that half the population in most developed countries doesn't work and they don't even design them for you know general day-to-day use on a workday. They design them pretty much for peak capacity for commuting. That's what it's for. So, you know, <laughs> like what happens when you realize that you've been wasting money on this? It, not that you have been, but uh, more so that, you know, it is a waste of investment to continue to support this model of, you know, peak travel, right? Bringing a ton of people into one space and then moving a ton of people out. Um what what happens, right? So will cities say, hey, we're not going to incentivize this anymore. We're not going to subsidize. I mean, a great example, again, in, when we're talking about office or location-based work is uh, governments that incentivize corporations to come and bring, you know, a thousand jobs or something like that, right? You know, that uh, Newark, New Jersey, I think, bid $7 billion to uh, get Amazon HQ2, right? And and that was which was like more than the cost of the of Amazon's actual project to develop HQ2. Uh and it was just so you could have those thousands of jobs in Newark, right? They didn't actually win the bid, of course, so, you know, whatever. But, you know, that that construct, right, to say we're going to give you money for you to bring jobs here and in a lot of cases there's a there's a really good organization called Good Jobs First that tracks a lot of these subsidies. Um, in a lot of these cases, especially the bigger deals, you're talking about, you know, six figures per job that taxpayers are paying in incentives, right, to bring to bring a job locally to a place, right? If we start looking at that more critically and saying, why are we spending money to bring 
jobs here when anyone could just be here with their job, um, then we can start thinking about how we can reprioritize those investments. And there's, there's a lot to be, there's a lot to be said for all the expenses that go into how we build and operate our cities today that are really structured around that. As I said, commuting to an office, being in an office, having an office be empty when it's not office time. Um, and, and again, you know, you would know a lot more about this than I would as far as the actual inefficiencies of the buildings. Yeah. Um, but it's, uh, it's, it's ripe for disruption and not in a corny startup way, but in a, a really, you know, substantial <laughs> like line item and budget consideration, uh, way from a, from a taxpayer standpoint and investment standpoint. You raised a, a lot of really, really good points. And it's, it's funny that you say about how, the, how the roads have been planned, you know, for peak. Um, commuting. And, you know, the first thing that came to mind is, you know, do you ever really solve for it? Like the example that you gave, if, you know, you know, Amazon HQ or, you know, whatever, you know, corporate headquarters comes into uh, a city, um, city center and suddenly, you know, you're adding an extra thousand, two thousand, three thousand jobs, you know, the infrastructure obviously has to be able to support that. And so, mm-hmm. you know, you're constantly seeing, you know, you're getting the expansion where you go from four lanes to five lanes to six yeah, lanes. Like every yeah. couple of years, you're constantly doing that. Yeah. And it just seems like just it's craziness, right? Because it's like, are you ever really going to achieve an optimal state where, you know, you, you've arrived, right? And, yeah. and instead, it's like there's just this constant push of jobs and headquarters and whatever, and always into the downtown core. That leads me to kind of the next um, point was when you were talking about sustainability is that, you know, I often think about, okay, so understanding that there's, you know, this decline potentially in urban city centers, you've got these thousands of buildings that are sitting there half empty, three quarters empty, some of them that might not have anybody in them at all. You've got people that have now moved into sort of the surrounding neighborhoods and that, you know, don't want to do the commute. There's a lot of conversation around, you know, co-working spaces. You know, I've heard in the earlier parts of uh, last year about using, um, I forget the class. I think they're, I don't think they're B-class buildings. Maybe they're C-class hmm. buildings, but more like industrial type uh, right. locations that are like ground level so that you don't have to deal with elevators and kind of this revamping of these spaces so that you have still offices, but they're not towers. Now they're just expansive, you know, one level sort of offices. Mm-hmm. And I often wonder, like, I mean, there's not that many when you go into suburbia, like some of the examples that you gave of some of the cities that you that you mentioned, you know, that don't have office towers. You know, they probably have more retail, maybe a couple of, you know, um, offices, head offices or whatever, but more small scale is you certainly don't want construction to be starting in these suburban cities in order to accommodate people to work in an office in the neighborhoods where they live, because that yeah. seems very contra to me with respect to sustainability. It's like you've got these buildings that are going to sit downtown empty. Now you're going to be building new locations in the suburbs. Yeah. And it's again around that concept of work happens in a building versus work mm-hmm. happening anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and again, I think it's uh hopefully we make good decisions around how we spend our dollars and make our policies, but it's going to be interesting because I think that really 
that's really going to have a large say in it, right? Like do, you know, we already have a ton of space. We, we, you know, even though people might say otherwise, you know, we have bars that are not functioning until, you know, 5 PM restaurants that aren't functioning until 5 PM. We have, um, parks. And if we don't have enough parks, there should be more, you know, if there are civil services like libraries and things of that nature that aren't well equipped, then they should be, uh, all of these things, do or can exist to house people who would like to, you know, ad hoc, uh, collaborate and co-work. Um, and I think that's easy enough to achieve without having to build entire structures around again. And I, and again, I would say it's not only concerning to think that we're going to specifically build structures for co-working or invest dollars in that. Um, but that, that again is like the least compelling case to me as far as, uh, you know, Teletravel is concerned, like, you know, communicating the, the ideas of knowledge work and the, the problems of knowledge work and white collar work is, um, is just like so easily absorbed by what you could solve in any, in almost any other sector. Um, but I, and I, you know, I do in the same sense of talking about, you know, the policies that we make and the investments, I really do hope that we will be able to push, um, the large building, commercial building owners, the real estate and commercial real estate investors to move towards mixed use and residential because it solves so many of those problems, right? Like the affordability of transportation and access to hospitals and universities and libraries and other civil services, you know, the, the efficiency of a city being able to manage services that, that don't scale very well, um, you know, like police and fire and things of that nature, they don't scale well when you build out, you know, a huge suburban sprawl environment, right? It's much easier for those to operate in a, in an urban core. Um, so verticalization is great uh, as long as we make good use of that space. But if the space again is only being used a third of the time, um, for work purposes and in many of those other occasions when it's not, it's still eating up, you know, uh, emissions as far as, you know, uh, HVAC and lighting and things of that nature, then that's going to be obviously suboptimal is maybe the nicest way to say it. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know. That that would be my big push is I, d- I don't think we need to worry so much about what happens when people get into their, their exurb uh, environments or their kind of suburban, um, you know, town centers and things of that nature so much as what do we do with these large buildings that oh, have yes. access that just have a ton of access, right, and naturally function really well as a center for life and society, mm-hmm. that that would be my kind of my main concern. I vote for vertical farming. <laughs> That's yeah, kind sure. of been my thing. It's like, hey, instead of using all the land up in, you know, when you go out, out of the city, you know, go turn to vertical farming because it's pretty central and, you know, there's a there's a good way to, to make use of all those uh, empty buildings. Yeah. Um, so given the fact that the uh, future of urban cities with commute aversion is gaining ground, there's been a lot of talk about how employees are saving money, uh, mm-hmm. and that's giving employers the option to potentially reduce people's pay. So what are your mm-hmm. thoughts about that? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so first off, I I continue to be surprised at the level of adoption um and uh engagement that people have with the, the notion of kind of telecommuting permanently, given that so many of them have only learned it through 
this, you know, working from confinement thing that is not actual telecommuting. Mm-hmm. But um, and so in that sense, I guess my point is, if they if they do get to a point where they realize, oh, things have opened up and it's actually really great to walk around my neighborhood and I have access to things, there's even more savings to be had by reducing your you know car ownership or car usage, um, and then that kind of builds itself into, oh, okay, well now we should be spending less dollar, less tax dollars on you know, widening highways to your point and things of that nature, right? So there's there's a lot more savings to be had, which is worth noting. Uh, to that end, should you be paying someone less because they're saving money? Uh, you know, I guess that all kind of comes down to like who who's saying it and for what reason. But I think the unpopular opinion maybe is that we like we should be aiming to have everything cost less and not to have everyone be more wealthy because it's like you know not possible for everyone to be wealthy that's not a thing <laughs> but you know it is possible for things to cost as little as possible so that everyone can sustain and you know to that end i think the problem is that that we really seen around the the pay issue is really just the lack of transparency and willingness to uh interact in a in a more fair contractual basis between employer and employee uh you know the the employer obviously for a very long time had the upper hand that is still the case even though thankfully there's there's a huge push from the labor side but i think we need to get to that point first where people have a better understanding of where the costs are being saved um who benefits from that where the employer, you know, why the employer pays you one way versus another um, and what the value is of that or whether that maybe is archaic and needs to be reconsidered. Um, you know, certainly as someone who conceived legislation to make telecommuting a civil right, I can certainly empathize with the notion that someone would argue I'm doing the same exact job in Tulsa, Oklahoma, that I was doing in San Francisco. I can't necessarily empathize with the why should I be paid less thing. My argument would have been, you know that the amount of money that was bumped up to make me a San Francisco employee is not relevant. But then the follow-up to that would be that money that was saved by making me a Tulsa employee instead of a, a San Francisco employee, you know, where does that go? And that to me is, is kind of the big, the big issue, right? Like if Google or Facebook or, or whoever can save a ton of money um, by shifting their talent pools to, uh, lower, you know, pay bands and, uh, pay differentials, then does that result in lower costs of their products? Those are kind of bad examples because they're both free. Um, <laughs> well, well, that's, but that's an interesting point in and of itself that we can go into, but, you know, think, think anything else, right? Where you actually pay for the service of their product, you know, is that, is that cost being lowered? Um, because that is, that is where we should be going, in my opinion, is the efficiencies that are gained from, these kind of innovations should go back into the the uh, lower cost of the product or service that's being produced. And that's nat- both naturally and uh, justifiably people's concerns are the money will just go into the pockets of the investors and the executives, um, which, you know, in any case, founded or, or otherwise, founded or unfounded, you're not putting yourself in a good position as a business leader. Uh, if you haven't been transparent about that before. So y- you're you're kind of at fault regardless <laughs> of whether you, of what you plan to do with that money if you haven't been upfront from the beginning about, you know, what you know, what does the organization do when it realizes a cost efficiency um by, you know, hiring people from a different place? What does it do with that money? 
So the transparency and the willingness to have conversations and to collaborate and compromise is really the thing to me that kind of transcends any discussion around, you know, whether someone should be paid less or more or whatever the case may be. Wow, there's a lot of really thought-provoking ideas there. And just kind of thinking about the whole idea of, you know, different pay, uh, basically potential of, you know, having um, varied pay depending on where you live for essentially doing the same job, like the example that you gave, um, and, and how that potentially uh, should impact, you know, the cost of uh, goods and services that we consume. Um, it's interesting because when we think about, uh, you know, obviously, if you're in uh, the same in the same city kind of going out, it's one discussion, you know, but as soon as you start talking about moving to a different state or even to a different country, as I said, taxation and, you know, legal matters aside, when you think about it from purely from the standpoint of the job that you do, the skill set that you have and the capabilities to basically do that job, you know, should there be differences in pay? I had a conversation with a friend of mine, actually, who is in India, and we had this conversation and, you know, she actually, she's Canadian, but she, she lives abroad. And she mm. was telling me about how the international positions as well, in terms of, you know, does that apply? So, for example, years ago, we saw, you know, when contact centers, for example, you know, went overseas, mm. right? And so, because the labor was less expensive or IT services or other things that have been outsourced now to other parts of the world where labor is, is way less expensive. The services that we've received from these companies who've done that, being financial institutions, telecommunications, whoever, haven't really changed because the costs are still up there. Um, And so it's kind of that thing of, okay, does the reducing of the pay um, sort of equalize based on cost of living of where you are? Because the example that this friend of mine gave me was, you know, obviously cost of living in other parts of the world, you know, is very, very different than in North America. Right. So if you're paying somebody, you know, 50000 or $60,000 U.S., uh, you know, in North America, that's that same amount of money being paid to someone in another part of the world goes a lot further, right? Yeah. And so mm-hmm. there's always that argument of where the employer is kind of up in your business, for lack of a better word, of figuring out, how you're going to spend that money or relative to, you know, the cost of living. But there is also the part of affordability, as you say, is is that if I'm if I'm skilled and I have I'm competing against someone that has the same skill set, why should the pay be different? But that causes causes concern because it's kind of like, okay, now all of a sudden the the true globalization of the workforce, where if pay is equal, regardless of where you go, what is that what is that going to mean longer term yeah yeah it's um you know i've i've been kind of talking about this with folks and just saying kind of repeatedly that like i not so much maybe it's not quite tragedy of the commons but i think a lot of the folks who are campaigning for you know equal work for equal pay from the standpoint of you know ge- geography are maybe at risk of shooting themselves in the foot because <laughs> that there seems to be an assumption that like and and I get this, the assumption that, like, if a company is willing to pay a San Francisco, you know, wage, then that is what they're willing to pay for the good, the good being the labor, and anything less is discriminatory. I see that angle. The reality is not that, right? The, the reality is usually when you're structuring compensation packages and, and plans at your company, 
you have a base level of, you know, what you're willing to pay for what you think the value of the job is worth. And then there will be a pay differential that's usually a bump that would say, well, if we do want to hire in San Francisco and that and why you would hire in San Francisco is, you know, increasingly dubious reasons. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we will pay someone more for that. So the reality is that, like, if you're a U.S. only employer, you probably have for, say, a, a developed software developer. There might be like a 90K, you know, base value that you put on that job. And if you're willing to hire someone from San Francisco for 140, there are probably a lot of other reasons that you're doing that. Again, some of them may not be sustainable anymore, but, you know, that's a bonus that you're paying on them. Right. So to your point, if you're if your argument is this job can be done anywhere, it doesn't matter whether I'm in San Francisco or Tulsa then not only are you perpetuate and not only are you making the case that the job can also be done in India, but you're also making the case that, you know, what is the value of the job? The value of the job is whatever the, you know, the market demand is. So if that wage is a, a global median or, 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 you know, Indians uh, or India's, uh, you know, median wage or something like that, mm-hmm. that's going to be far, far lower than, any wherever you want to move in America and and command a salary, right? So like, what are you actually doing? What are you actually achieving if you're trying to pursue this this whole construct? So I think yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting problem. And from a macro perspective, to the point of you know your friend, I don't know if you guys discussed this, but I would assume also that she probably has some opinions on what happens when someone can work in India and make 150k US. That is going beyond you know, financial security <laughs> that is getting to a point of, okay, now you have a lot of pull in this community. Uh, and that is problematic, right? Maybe you do good things with it. Maybe you don't, but it, but you know, you can see that even on, on smaller scales. If you move to, if you're one of these people who move from San Fran to say, you know, Tulsa, Oklahoma, right. You're used to paying, I don't know if you're a man, you know, $60 or something maybe for a haircut in San Fran. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, two haircuts easily, if not three in Tulsa. Right. right. So w- what, what is the right thing to do from that standpoint? Is it right for you to pay 60 to, to the barber? Cause you're just saying, well, this is the value of the haircut I used right. to get. Right. So I'm willing <laughs> to do it. And then even, you know, which sounds odd to do if you're moving to Tulsa and also goes against your idea of why you would want to be moving there to, to you know, capitalize on your, yeah. <laughs> but then also like, are you even doing something good for the for the local community there if if you know this barber is seeing people come in and and spend sixty dollars on a haircut? Does he increase his prices and then make it you know unaffordable for the rest of the community like what you know there's just there's a lot of macroeconomics to be discussed here, and I am by no means uh even approaching <laughs> an expert on it, but I at the very least consider it enough to realize that it it's you're not really fighting for equality on the on the grand scale when you're talking about equal work for equal pay you're talking about something for yourself and uh, i think there's a lot to be considered there before we just kind of go gung-ho on that thing i think i think the other part that's really interesting about all of this is that you know if you think about the fact that uh labor cost basically your labor cost is your number one cost like most corporations it's the number number one cost and real estate cost is the number two cost right so mm-hmm. the conversation around you know, reducing, uh, if not eliminating your real estate costs, you know, will save companies millions, if not billions of dollars. Yeah. Right. And yeah. so it's kind of like, 
do you really need to go into the labor bucket? Like if you're eliminating your number two most expensive cost, you know, I think the labor, the labor bucket can pretty well stay constant as it is, if not maybe even improve because of the fact of all the savings that you're having. That is, you're saying is with all these savings, it's either going to reduce the cost of the goods and services, or at least that's what it, what should happen, or, you know, turn to the people that do work for your organization and, you know, start to revisit how people are paid because that's another, another topic in itself mm-hmm. and, and look at how you can improve that so that you do get the level of productivity engagement that for years companies have been saying, you know, that they struggle with that, you know, may be tied to the fact that there's inconsistencies or inequities in, in pay. Right. Yeah. And, and to your point before about, you know, being a, a good steward of the community, even if it's not your local community as an employer, right. And talking about how you can pay differently or let's just say, you know, compensate or reward people differently. There's, you know, that's something to be said that if you're saving money on real estate and you want your people to be as productive and, and satisfied and happy as possible, then, you know, one of the gripes is, well, if we all start working from home, then, then we see an uptick in, you know, uh, waste in energy use at home, uh, which is its own argument. But, you know, if that's the case, then cool. Invest in your people's homes, right? Say like, here's money that will go towards buying energy efficient, uh, utilities, or here's money that will go towards, you know, a community event to learn about gardening or whatever the case may be, or, or, um, you know, rain capture and th- things of that nature, right? Like you can, you can use that money to build a more sustainable world, which uh, ought to be a goal of, <laughs> of yeah. any corporation. Um, but you know, there's, there's just a million things you can do and it, it doesn't even have to be compensation, but if it is, it doesn't even have to go directly into the pockets of your employees or be for, you know, um, discretionary use. It can be for a whole lot of things. And if you want to be a good, uh, member of the community, as as an employer, then there's just there's just so much you can do, and there's so little that they have done to date that um, it's really it's really a challenge that I think needs to be addressed. Well, I love your ideas. There there there's a solution for virtually anything if you really sort of put your mind to it and think about think outside the box, right? Mm-hmm. So um, I really enjoyed this conversation, Mitch. Thank you yeah. again for being a guest today and for sharing your wisdom and insights with our listeners. Yeah, no, thank you so much for having me, Sandra. It's a pleasure.